Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service and the occasional interview or ministry resource. We hope you'll subscribe. Now, here's today's message. This morning's reading is from Galatians 1, verses 11 to 24. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Amen. Good morning again, and welcome to uh, Redeemer Lincoln Square. Um, as obviously, you can, as you know, we are going to do Q&R after the service, so you can be texting questions now if you like. Um, some of you, a lot of you probably don't know this, I actually have a lot of trouble sleeping at night. Um, it's, uh, it gets worse during the winter time. It's not good. I want to change and it's still really difficult. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but, uh, usually at the beginning of the year, a lot of people make new year's resolutions. They want to change. And I don't think I have to tell you that the statistics are pretty dismal by now. Over 80% of those new year's resolutions have been broken and are over. Um, and the reason why for that is because you and I might want to change but it's not so easy. It's incredibly difficult. There's usually two main paradigms that we try to use. I'll call it the, the top-down or the bottom-up approach. The top-down approach is, is sort of the external side. What we try to do is we try to find some sort of fact or truth, and we try to commit our life to that principle and that we're going to bend ourselves to that without wavering right, from the outside. Or the other view looks on the inside, and what we try to do is we try to uh, get in touch with some sort of feeling or emotion or, or, or some sort of, of value or experience that's going to drive us. Now, both those paradigms are actually kind of opposed to each other because one is looking on the outside, the other one is looking on the inside. It's fact or it's feeling. Now, Christianity, I think, pulls these two different views that most people keep apart together. It fuses these realities in a way that normally aren't fused. Last week we said that we're going to start a series. We've started a series on the book of Galatians, going by it verse by verse. Because we as a new church 
need to know what's going to be our foundation for how we're going to change. We need to know what that's going to be. And, and um, is it going to be looking on the outside or is it like looking on the inside? Paul in our text says it's actually fused together in the gospel. But that phrase, in the gospel, what does that even mean? We thought that, that phrase is thrown around so often in the church. How does it actually fuse the two? Well, look in the text right away. First verse is, I want you to know. Right? There's, there's, there's content there. There's fact. But then by verse 15, it's not just something that you know. It's something that is now experienced. Uh, it's something that's revealed, something that's felt, something that's happened to you. So the question I want to deal with today is, what does this text say to us about the gospel? And I think what it's telling us is that it's both fact and feeling that leads to freedom. So we're going to look at that this morning. This morning, let's look at fact that leads to feeling that, that actually brings about freedom. So first, Paul says here, the gospel is fact. It's true. It's real. In other words, he's, I think what he's saying is, is that for this to have power in your life, for it to change you, it has to be fact. It has to be true. See, look when he says this. Listen, I want you to know what? That the gospel I preached is not of human origin. He goes on in the next verse. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it. And then by verse uh, 16, 17, he says that this is something that has been revealed, right, to me, but I didn't consult anybody else. Uh, I didn't invent it. It was something that came from completely somewhere else. So he's trying to get at that the gospel could not have been made up by me or by you. It's utterly unique. And you say, okay, well, how's that true? Well, I, th- I think Paul says it's the resurrection, And we know that because if you go to verse 1 that we looked at last week, he starts his entire book by pointing out the resurrection and its uniqueness. Um, N.T. Wright uh, wrote a book called uh, um, The Resurrection of the Son of God. And in there, what he tries to say is that the Christian understanding of the resurrection could not have been produced by uh, any particular group at the time then. That somehow, immediately after Jesus, hundreds of, of Jewish individuals felt like that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, the problem with that is that the only Jewish reference about to resurrection in the Old Testament comes from Daniel 12. But there, resurrection is at the end of time. And so, everybody's going to be fixed and remade and renewed at the end of time. During Jesus' time, you had the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection at all. And then you had the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection, but it was going to happen at the end of time. And so the idea, the concept that somehow in the middle of history, just one person, Jesus, would die and then three days later be raised from the dead in some sort of perfected state. And then the first thing that he says to his most ardent supporters is, I'm hungry, do you, do you have any fish? That's what he does. And that, that breaks every category. That, you know, if you're trying to make up a religion, if you wanted to sell something to uh, Jewish individuals 2,000 years ago, you don't say, hey, um, hey, resurrection, I know some of you don't even believe it. Others of you do, but it's at the end of time. I'm telling you that it's in the middle of history that one individual actually is raised from the dead, and that's it. 
that doesn't compute. N.T. Wright shows us that so out of character, they couldn't have even accepted it if it was fiction. Now, you might push back and say, ah, fiction, maybe somebody did make it up. And maybe uh, they were just so prone to believe in miracles back then, and they so wanted him to be raised from the dead that they just thought it happened. But look at the people who first saw Jesus. Right after he was raised from the dead, who was it? It was Mary, and it was the two disciples on the road of Emmaus. And when those two groups saw him, they didn't recognize him. You would think that they would. If they were looking and hoping for so long, they would, they would see him. But they see him, but they don't see him. Why? Jesus, when he was walking around, when he was alive, he was, he was always saying sort of, I'm going to be raised from the dead, you know, on the third day, you know. I, he, he was saying these statements, but they didn't actually compute with them. It broke their categories. It, 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 it didn't fit their worldview because resurrection was impossible. I actually think for us today, in the world that we live in of, of sort of craziness, we, we're more likely to believe in resurrection than these people are, were. Some of you might say, well, maybe it wasn't the Jews. Maybe it was the Romans and the Greeks. Maybe they kind of put this on later on. But the problem is, for Greeks and Romans, the body was bad and the spirit was good. So the idea that Jesus was raised bodily actually doesn't work. And so in some respects, Jesus is too earthy for Greeks and Romans and actually not uh, earthy enough. They're too radical for the Jews. That there's no worldview from which Jesus' story could have originated from or could have evolved out of. It just didn't work. And Paul, by the way, takes pains to say, he, he doesn't want to take ownership of this either. He says, hey, by the way, for me, I was the guy persecuting the church. I was the guy who wanted to destroy the church. Look at verse 14. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Hey, that's what I wanted. In other words, the concept of, of the gospel of Jesus, that it could have evolved out of even Paul, he's saying it couldn't come from me naturally. I didn't get it from somewhere else. And so before we move on, here's what we need to say. Paul is trying to get at that if the gospel is going to have a life transforming value in you, you have to accept it at some level as fact. Please, whatever you do, do not just say, okay, this is a wonderfully symbolic, uh, you know, sense of stories from unscientific people who really wanted this to happen. To be honest, that's actually pretty culturally imperialistic. We're looking down on another culture and infusing our views on them. And please don't just say, well, you know what? It doesn't really matter if it's true or not. If you like it, if you get value out of it, it's good for you. Paul, again, that's not taking Paul at his word. Paul didn't think that was enough. What Paul's doing here is that he's saying, I saw the risen Jesus. The original people saw the risen Jesus. The biblical manuscripts that attest to this were written during the lifetimes of those who actually they're about. And so if... Uh, they were false, they would have been ripped up. But they weren't. And so we have to contend with this. If the scriptures were written too early for uh, them to be legends, and if the resurrection is too different from people who would have made it up, maybe, just maybe this is real. And if it is, we have to ask ourselves this morning, are we really letting it operate as fact in our life? Do we do that? 
Let me give you a fact. You want to know a, 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 a fact? Um, water boils at 100 degrees at sea level. 200, 100 degrees Celsius, 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And for every 500 feet of elevation that you go up, the boiling point decreases uh, 0.5 degrees Celsius. Fact. That fact actually affects us. You know why? Because we cook and we eat. And uh, th- that actually moves us. So if the fact that Paul is trying to tell us here is no one could have conceived of the gospel. And it's not of human origins. Do we base our lives around that fact? Do we, um, for those of you here who actually intellectually believe this, do you, does your life represent it? What percentage of your life represents it? Because I know I, I eat at least three times a day, maybe more, and that means that the fact of cooking physics, the boiling point of water does affect me. But do we let the fact of the resurrection affect us at least the same amount? That's the question. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and other members of our church community. If you have questions about today's message, send an email to lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our Sunday worship service. Now, here's the remainder of today's teaching. All right, moving on. Gospel is fact, Paul's saying here. Secondly, but it's also feeling. If this was just a concept, if this was just a moral philosophy for us to sit and pontificate about, we could just say, hey, accept it or, or, or um, leave it. Take it or leave it. But Paul says Christianity can't be just a fact. It actually connects with you. It affects you. It moves in you. In other words, if you want change to happen in you, truth can't stay on the sidelines. At some level, you don't just intellectually understand this. That's not enough. It actually has to move into all the areas of your life to affect you. Which means this. We can't sit here this morning and just sort of intellectually or cognitively understand Christianity. Jesus died for me. And then, if we, and then actually, uh, in our everyday lives, there, we look no different than anybody else. It doesn't work that way. If, if we say that we believe this, then if we're still on another level throwing ourselves into things that can't and won't actually work, that means you and I don't actually get it. It might be fact, but it's not value for you. It's not experience for you. It's not felt. So looking, at, looking back at Paul, the, I think that's why he goes straight into his personal story. This is his testimony. And he notes his past, and he locates himself as a persecutor. He, he says, I was an intense persecutor. But this intense persecutor is turned into somebody who what? It says uh, by verse 15, one who preaches. Preaches what? Himself? No. He preaches about him, about Jesus. And so he previously had an identity where he was trying to prove himself, but now he's been given a new identity. It's not so much um, what he's done for this to happen to him, it's what's been, what's actually, what's been done for him to move him and change him. And so the more that we dwell and reflect on this, the more it actually tends to give us a new identity. Because he had, his old one was based on this zeal and this intensity that, look what I've done. But when grace enters into his life, it tends to knock you down and turn you from being a persecutor to being a lover of others. Let me, let me try to put it differently. 
if your identity is performance-based, which is what most religions are, it's, it's uh, look what I'm doing, then you tend to get angry at people who you don't think are performing the way that you think is right. So if you say, hey, work hard and be moral and try hard, religion focuses us on that achievement. And then what happens is when we don't see other people doing the same thing, it's our job to call them out on that. That's, what, that's why, by the way, that Paul, the way he previously got identity, his identity was trying to destroy what he thought was wrong. Which, by the way, is the same reason that we're so critical of other people because we're like, well, that's wrong. I need to call that out. Much of the talk that I see right now politically on the left and on the right actually is very religious. It's very performance-based. Because you see people, you see conservatives who essentially say, hey, I want to work for moral values. I want to work for preserving the past. But then they look at progressives and say, hey, you're not performing the right way. But then you see progressives that say, hey, I want to work for properly, uh, for, for justice. But then they look at conservatives and say, hey, you're not performing the right way. And so this, re- this religion creates this performance-based zeal where we persecute other people because we say, you're not doing what we know that you should be doing. Now, question, when Paul gets grace, did he all of a sudden not care about right and wrong? Did he all of a sudden not believe in justice and injustice? Of course he did. But the way he went about it changed. That's what happens. How he went about it. He went from being a performance-based persecutor to being a lover of all people, which means then he had a different posture to the people that he didn't agree with. Before grace, Gentiles for Paul were the worst. They were outside. They were unclean. They, they, were, they, were, that, they were the people he couldn't stand. After grace, now all of a sudden, it allowed him not just to be among them, not just to tolerate them, but to develop a love for them that he didn't know he could even have for them. It was beyond his, his wildest imagination. Because the gospel is the message of grace. It is what been, has been done for you. But if you have this in you, one of the marks that this grace has come to you is that now you deal differently with people whom you radically disagree with. In the past, you might have uh, you know, felt demeaned by them or, or, or dishonored. And you've done the same thing to them. But now, you look at them differently. You don't feel the same level of attack. And they don't feel as attacked by you. So, I, and then, by the way, I'm not just talking about Democrat, Republican. I'm talking employee, employer. I'm talking about that family member. I'm talking about that friend, that, per, that friend, that person in your life that whom you just loathe. Has your identity changed Has your identity been changed by grace so much that you feel at some level called to that person or to those people? Because here's what I think will heal the world. It's not gonna be the eradication of that people group whom you think the problem resides in. No offense, history is made up of this process and it doesn't work because it assumes that the problem is all them. But if the problem is actually us, only then grace is gonna be able to heal us. Because that if the only way that it's that you feel empathy and care and concern because you have felt empathy, you've been given empathy, care, and concern in your life. So how the question is how can that actually happen? How can that come about? And Paul says it's only if Jesus has been revealed to you. Well, okay, where do you see that? Well, 
In Acts chapter 9, Jesus is revealed to Paul. And um, what he says to Paul is this. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Later on in the passage, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now question, Paul never actually in the flesh met Jesus. So how could Jesus say, hey, you're persecuting me? The answer is that Jesus inhabits and feels for his people so much, he felt the pain of Paul's persecution personally. Right, so that's why you could say that. that. That means then all the hurt, all the oppression, as Paul was an oppressor, Jesus looks at his oppressor in the eyes in the person of Paul and says, you're the one who killed me, you're the one who beat me, you're the one who injured me, and instead of taking retribution back from Paul, he accepts him. And I think that's what changes him. That's what changes Paul. And so here's the secret. You and I are persecutors every day. It's in the small slights. It's in the, the, the digs that, are, that sit in your head that you might not ever let people see it. They, they, those, those thoughts never see the light of day, but they're in you. It's maybe, it's the way that we live in our own little bubble of reality without concern or care for other individuals. And that, that's a type of persecution. Uh, it, by the way, this can be good things. It can be your looks, it can be your performance, it can be your deeds that you use to validate your existence. That actually, over time, that injures the world. That I'm valued enough, that I'm better than you, that I've done this. You and me and Paul can be changed from being that persecutor to being a lover of others through Jesus. When he came, he didn't banish us for what we've done, but accepts us. And therefore, now we can go to the persecutors of our lives and accept them. We'll try to put it differently. If the core of Christianity is this, the core of Christianity is a man who dies for people who don't love him, who don't care for him, who actually actively persecuted him, and he says, I am going to accept you because I've, I'm gonna die for you on the cross. If you make that man the center of your reality, the core of your being, now and only now can you now go and accept those who've rejected you and have persecuted you, and now you can die for them. That's Christianity. That's the core of Christianity. That if he can do that for me, now I can do it for him and for others. If Jesus ultimately is the Messiah, if you go to Isaiah uh, chapter 53, it says the Messiah there is like a lamb who is led away to be slaughtered. But he did not open his mouth. And when we see that we were saved because he was persecuted, now we're not the ones doing the persecution. We can still be critical, we can still care about justice, we can still care about these things, but it's not gonna come out in the same way. It's a new identity. Every other identity that I know of that's performance-based makes, what does it do? It makes us um, perform against the clock, perform against success, perform against others that we say, think are not living the life that they should be living. But Christianity says identity is not achieved. It's received. This is, what, this is verse 15. Paul says, I've received this. And this is why I think the gospel is so counterintuitive is it meshes things that we don't think can go together. Everything else in life is this. Either some group of people say, live this way, act this way, that's how you're getting your identity. Or there's people, you hear this too in New York. It's live any way you want. You know, do whatever you want. It's, it's kind of a cheap grace. It doesn't really matter. Christianity slams them together and says, no, actually there is grace. It's costly grace, not to you, but to him. 
And when you receive that in the bowels of your being, then what ends up happening is, is you don't just live any way you want. You say, I want to live for the one who died for me. And so ask yourself, has this changed you? Have you, is there evidence in your life that you're resting on this gospel not of human origin? Because Paul is, is saying that this, this is a fact that's lived in a feeling and experience of the gospel. It's, it's so powerful and so profound. If you call yourself a Christian here today, you can live your entire life and you can get to the end of it and still realize that you've just barely scratched the surface of what this has actually meant. That it's truth and grace, fact and feeling. Now, last point. Uh, and more of a bonus point because Paul, I think, gives a concept here in verse 15 that can actually help us be led to freedom. And then in verse 15, that when he's trying to show us what does it mean that this has been revealed to him, he tells us that this grace, look at 15, it says this grace who set me apart from my, from my mother's womb. It began back then. Which is actually a really interesting thing that he goes to. Because what he's basically saying is, hey, I didn't become a Christian until later on in life. And I did some terrible, awful things. And when I look back over my life, I actually realized that everything that had happened, everything that had gone on, everything was actually still a part of my calling from the very beginning. That's what Paul's trying to say here. That if grace is not something that you can achieve well, and it's actually given to you, then Paul says what we're supposed to do is then trace through the arc of our lives the ups and the downs, the good and the bad, how that might be actually him calling us to him. So what Paul was going, what was going on for him is he was being crushed by his own moralism as a Pharisee. It wasn't working. He was doing it, but he was only doing it because there was nothing else that he could think that he could do. But then as he's, that, the, him getting hammered by it, the failings through that ultimately was, was a way for God to say, you need me, not that. Let me try to illustrate this uh, to you with a story I've used before in Lincoln Square. I have to confess, it's not, it's not mine. It's not, it's, this is not an original illustration. I've adapted it, but it's too fun not to. Um, here's how I'll do it. Why are we here today? Why are we in this room? We're in this room because we're worshiping uh, at Lincoln Square because Redeemer Westside called me and called you all to start this church two and a half years ago. Right, I'm a Presbyterian minister. They said, hey, start this Presbyterian church. But, okay, why am I a Presbyterian minister today? Well, I actually became a Christian in college. Um, and it was, you know, it was through a ministry called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, run by Presbyterians. And I became a Christian there, decided to go to seminary and become a Presbyterian minister. But uh, the question we have to ask is, well, why did I become a specifically a Christian through them? Well, my father's a Presbyterian minister. And it turns out that I was doing some crazy things on this college campus. And the Presbyterian minister there found out about it. So he befriended me and said, hey, let's hang out, let's talk, let's, let's uh, get together. And that's when I started going to the college fellowship and became a Christian. But why was my dad a Presbyterian? To ask that question. Well, he became a Presbyterian because it, the last semester in his seminary experience, he got convinced to become a Presbyterian at a, by a class that he took by an individual who came over from England that actually he was having, this individual was having visa issues and wasn't going to come. And the class never would have happened and my father never would have been convinced to become a Presbyterian minister. But there was another individual in that class. His name was Michael Ford and he wanted that class to happen too. 
And he wanted, so he, he cut through the red tape. But why was Michael Ford able to cut through the red tape? Well, his father was Gerald Ford. Why, who was Gerald Ford? Gerald Ford was president of the United States at the time. Hey, dad, can you get this guy through? No problem. Okay, hang up. Well, why was Gerald Ford president of the United States at the time? Well, because Richard Nixon resigned. Why did he resign? Because of Watergate. Why did Watergate happen? I don't actually know. But it's so that we could be in this room today. That, that's, there we go. There we go, there we go. Um, and, you know, we can laugh about that, but why am I telling you this story? If God could set Paul apart for the gospel from birth, and all the bad and all the brokenness of his life could lead to that good, then maybe Watergate was for us. What I'm trying to say is God is always at work, even when we don't see it, especially when we don't see it. In other words, the hundred of different normal things that are happening in your life today, every day, they seem like they're just ordinary incidences, but they're actually happening to bring you where you are today. Think about, let's reverse this. What about the tragedies in your life? Think about the bad that's actually happened. See, that's what normally people start going to at this moment. They say, well, wait a second. I can't make sense of some of that hurt. I can't make sense of some of that brokenness out there. And see, Paul had caused and probably had been part of a lot of brokenness in his life too. And instead of looking at all those terrible things and saying, and, or, or being thrown into the pit of despair, he saw grace. How was that possible? My uh, mother, I think this week, sent me a, um, one of those viral kind of um, videos that I tend to just delete, but it was uh, the viral video um, of this one was an African-American man named Dr. Jonathan Evans who was doing a funeral for his mother. And I was like, okay, I better watch this. Um, and it was a, it was a one minute, it was only a one minute clip. It was, so it was, it was, it was short. And the guy was talking about death. He was saying, hey, death is, po- is the worst thing that could happen to you in life. And um, what he was saying is, is that when you pray for somebody who might die, as a Christian, there's actually only two possible answers to those prayers. Right? The, 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 the two possibilities are this. Either she's going to be healed or she's going to be healed. Either she's going to end up being with her family or she's going to end up being with her family. Either she's going to live or she's going to live. Right? Either she's going to be taken care of or she's going to be taken care of. You see, the, the point was God is in control. That is why Paul, he could look through the bad and he could see the good. He could see how God was actually going to use it. And he's telling us that God is always behind what we don't even know, or we can't even see, and he's bringing good to us through that. God is never absent from your life. Even if you think he's being silent right now, it's possible he's just talking to you in a way that you've never heard before. He, really, he is. He's working for your salvation, even if you can't see it, especially when you can't see it. And so here's what the Christian life lets us do. It lets us be able to say, I don't know why bad things are happening in this moment, but it can't be that God's not good because God took the ultimate bad thing in the person of Jesus when he died on the cross and he turned it into good. And if he can do that for him, then he can do that for me in my life and death as well. That's what Christianity is able to say. The nature of Jesus' victory, which is life through death, now means through grace we can have life through death.
Christians know that we're, we know that we're going to be taken care of either in this life or the next. And he's orchestrating everything to bring that about. And so the question, how, this is how we're going to leave. Will you let this grace reside in you? Will you let it move into you? Will you let this be the foundation by which you're going to have all change from? Because God wants to give you, he's trying to give you spectacles right now to look over your entire life and say, he was there all along. And we're going to see in ensuing chapters, we're going to see how this grace, if you let it sit there, how it moves us out into the world, how it changes our behavior out there. But for now, before we go there, I want you to ask, will you let it in? Will you let this in sit in the fact, in the feeling, and in the value of it? He has lived a life for you. Will you let that be a living truth for you and change you? And that change happens on the inside. Yes, it'll move out on the outside, but will you let it be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's fact and feeling. It's truth and grace. It's what you've done for us, not just what we're doing, Father. The way we live, the way the world works is always performance-based. And that's why we're attacking and attacking and attacking. It's not that we don't care about love and truth and real uh, you know, change that we want to see out there. It's how we go about it. Help us change our inmost being. Help that, help that happen through the grace of Christ that resides in us. If it can change somebody like Paul, he's given us his testimony. If it can change somebody like him, it can change us. Help us to be able to trace the rainbow through the rain. Help us to be able to see where you're going. Even when we can't, Father, then help us to trust that in that moment that we know that you can take anything, any evil, any brokenness, and bring about redemption and restoration. We praise things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning into our church's podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, and we invite you to join us for worship on Sunday. We're located at the corner of West 64th Street and Central Park West. More details can be found on our website, lincolnsquare.redeemer.com. Thanks again for listening to the LSQ Podcast.